in Second Timothy, Paul, he's building an argument for timid Timothy to boldly proclaim God's word. And he sort of reaches his crescendo in chapter 4, 1 and 2, and he says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's the present active imperative Caruso to herald, to proclaim. But in, in building up that argument prior to this, he also instructs Timothy to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So Timothy is to be careful and conscientious in how he handles God's word. Now in building up to that statement, Paul gives Timothy three illustrations or three metaphors to help him understand the role of a faithful preacher. He uses the metaphor of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And in terms of the athlete, he says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, just personally speaking, that phrase has always bothered me because in its immediate context, Paul doesn't tell me what the rules are. And I want to be a faithful preacher, and so I know that if I put all of these things in context, that I must play by the rules if I'm to become an approved workman of God who preaches the word. So what are the rules? And does technology have any interplay in this discussion? Well, we have typically always understood preaching to be a live, public, oral proclamation of God's revealed word addressed to a live audience. And as long as the preacher is being faithful to the text and obedient to his command to proclaim God's word, then the use of technology in essence becomes a secondary issue unless it somehow distorts or changes the preaching event so that it cannot be considered a preaching event anymore. Now, we have to recognize that technology has always had sort of a symbiotic relationship with biblical proclamation. And the use of technology in preaching is nothing new, though in the last half century there appears to have been an invasion of technology, especially media technology in connection with preaching. So it's a, it's a broad uh, subject, and I'm, I'm only able to be somewhat overviewish in this address. But I want to try to address four things uh, with you. The first is the use of technology in preaching history. The second is the use of technology in contemporary preaching. The third would be uh, to just overview several of the voices who have spoken into the influence of media technology and public discourse. And then, fourthly, to make a stab at what the rules are in integrating technology into preaching. So let me begin. The use of technology in preaching history. Well, like I said, preaching has always utilized technology. Even if you consider geographic technology, then we have to use the Lord in, in his um, speaking environments where he would 
place himself on a mount and he would either speak up to the crowd or, or down so that both visually and audibly he can be heard. And then as church history progressed, the church used architectural technology to simply do the same, to provide visual and audio, audio help. Um, part of the purpose of the cathedrals was to do this. Not only were they visually impressive, uh, part of it was to enhance of the audio of those that were speaking. And then of course we all know that the use of stained glass was used to display visual images of the gospel and it really helped those who were illiterate and those who were unlearned. But in terms of technology, sort of everything changes with the printing press. And preaching then went through a monumental and cultural transformation once printed Bibles were available to the masses print media allowed for the individual now to have access to knowledge and biblical literacy grew tremendously. And then eventually sermons were written down in shorthand form and they began to be published. Now we have to understand that a printed sermon is different than preaching and I don't think we should consider reading a printed sermon the same as preaching. As a matter of fact, one illustration of this would have been when a publisher approached George Whitfield in the 18th century and asked Whitfield if, if he could uh, publish his sermons and put them into print. And Whitfield considered this and then he said, sure, as, as long as you also add the thunder and the lightning that goes along with it. So, sarcastically, he was making the point that, yeah, you can put my sermons into print, but that's not like being at the real event. So, let me move now to the use of technology in preaching present. Because in the last half century, there has been an explosion of media technology used in preaching. And this primarily is with the onset of electric media or electric technology beginning with audio ampli amplification but then we need to move to radio and of course radio and the technology of radio changed preaching tremendously in the culture of preaching now sermons could be accessed across across the country and eventually across the globe and then from radio you have television which then brought on televangelism amen and uh, and then of course uh, most recently, you've got multimedia using PowerPoint, video, image magnification, etc. Now we have the onset of the internet and we have the influence of social media in its reference to preaching and the audience. And, and, and then there's been a lot of discussion uh, within homiletics now uh, since the advent of video preaching or maybe we could refer to it as virtual preaching which has the ability to project the preacher via technology to a congregation in a distant, or sometimes they call that a satellite location. So there is no doubt that the preaching event has been transformed by technology. The question we need to ask, what are the benefits and what are the deficits of this? Now, if you simply do your research and you, you go online and you, you Google, you know, using video technology and preaching, you'll tend to get a lot of very affirmative um, blog sites and 
um, uh, and other sites on the use of it. So one example that I found, uh, just sort of a very pragmatic encouragement in utilizing video technology in preaching, it said, you know, there are six benefits. First of all, it keeps the sermon relevant. It keeps young people interested. It keeps the preacher up to date with culture. That's always encouraging. It creates a more powerful worship experience for whatever that's worth. It's more appealing to visitors, but what really tickled my ears as a pastor was, it allows you to increase the size of your audience, which ultimately is why we do what we do, right? That was a joke, you can laugh. But the use of technology in preaching is really much more complex than simply offering kudos and pragmatic results. There really is more taking place when certain technological mediums are integrated with preaching. And to that, I want to now speak to several, there are more, but maybe several key voices who have spoken into the influence of media technology in public discourse. The first, um, and probably maybe the most important historical voice is that of Marshall McLuhan, who is famous for the phrase, the medium is the message. So McLuhan, 1911 to 1980, born and educated in Canada, he also received several degrees while at Cambridge, and he taught communications both in Canada and in the US. His interest in media technology led him to become um, sort of a, a philosopher, a, a poet, if you would, a bit of a prophet of communications technology. Uh, you have to also understand that, that McLuhan lived and wrote mainly in the 60s era, which um, really led to, I think, his style of writing. Um, he can really come across as vague, sometimes writing circular reasoning. It, 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 it can be difficult to sort of piece together what he's saying. He was a man of his age. But he, he was, in essence, sort of a prophet in terms of uh, media technology. Uh, McLuhan's theories influenced the work of several future writers and artists, such as Andy Warhol, uh, Neil Postman, who I'll address in a, in a minute, uh, Seth Godin, who, if you know him, he's sort of an entrepreneur and now a TED Talk celebrity who has coined the phrase, ideas that spread when. And McLuhan really got launched onto the world stage with his publication of the book, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man. And in this book, he argues that all mediums of communication transform social order. So McLuhan defines a medium uh, of communication as any technology that possesses the power to alter or distort human awareness and perception. He believed that technology changes our experience of the world. And his most famous dictum, of course, is the medium is the message, which is a bit of a paradoxical statement, and it's been debated for decades. But what I think he's basically saying is that new forms of technology change us and transform our culture from previous experiences. So it's the technology, that medium, 
that tends to change us more than the information that is transmitted through it. So what's the real message? What's the real agent of change? The real message of any medium or technology is the change of scale or the pace or pattern that it introduces into human affairs. And, and because new technology changes social structures more than the information passed through it, the medium is the more important message or the more socially transformative message than the communication passed through it because it has a greater lasting effect. So if you're a Seinfeld fan like me, if you're not, you won't get this at all, then you have to recall, you have to recall that the most significant scene when George Costanza and Jerry Seinfeld are sitting on a couch along with the NBC executives and they're trying to push their concept of a television series which is about nothing. It's a show about nothing. And when the NBC execs ask him what's the show about, George says it's a show about nothing. And the exec says to George, well then why would someone watch it? To which George just sort of sarcastically um, s comes back at him and says, because it's on TV. And George Costanza totally understood what McLuhan was talking about. It's the medium that's what's most important, not necessarily what's contained in it or the communication that passes through it. So McLuhan believed that all modes of media communication function as extensions of the human person. Now this is where McLuhan gets a little weird, but listen to me and you'll, you'll get the sense of what he's, he's trying to, um, uh, to, to speak to. So all technology in some sense is an extension of the human person. Clothing is an extension of skin, he would say. The wheel is an extension of the human foot. The radio is an extension of the human ear. He said, because this was just at the onset of television at this point, that the television is an extension of the central nervous system. And he would talk about technology sort of as the extensions of man. And he said at times, um, technology may extend one aspect of our senses well beyond the other senses. And for McLuhan, the invention of the alphabet and the medium of the printed book extended the eye and transformed society like no other media before it, uh, to which his thinking on this has been called the Gutenberg galaxy. Now, McLuhan would also say that whenever a new technology is advanced, something has to be amputated. So in essence, when you get in your car and drive, the, the wheels of the car now are an extension of your feet, but you're not using your feet anymore. So your feet have become amputated, or, or maybe something is paralyzed. So McLuhan would say that when you watch a movie, the ability to imagine is paralyzed because everything is given to you. He calls that a hot medium where you're just merely an observer because everything else is given to you. And in, in, in sort of advocating this, he also believed that new technologies were merely conduits of older technologies or older media. So 
a book, in essence, is just a conduit of some type of oral speech uh, or a telegraph or a television at some point in time has to go all the way back to something that had been written, which goes back to something that had been orally spoken. And, and so, you know, McLuhan sort of sees technology as extensions and as amplifications of, of prior media. And I just don't have enough time to, to delve into McLuhan more. I would encourage you, if you have the, the time and the energy, and if you're willing to be um, thoroughly confused at times, to, to study McLuhan and, and delve into his discussions of hot versus cool media and the narcissus effect of media that it has on us and some of his very famous statements sort of, uh, such as, we look at the present through a rearview mirror, we march backwards into the future. I mean, it's really fascinating now, 50 years later, to, to analyze McLuhan, he, he had a lot right. And, and one of the things that he believed is that when a new medium comes in, we tend to look at older media and even at times appreciate their value in a new way. So the advent of the radio actually helped us to think more deeply and appreciate the medium, medium of print he would say the advent of television has, has allowed us to appreciate the media of movies more and that even older mediums can find their place in cultures with advancing technologies. But if we're not careful, older mediums may end up more like artifacts for collectors than remain purposeful for communication. So a classic example of this would be my kids want vinyl records and I'm asking them why do you want vinyl records well dad they're cool and they don't even really care about having a vinyl record player they just see a vinyl record sort of as an artifact to be collected because it has a cool cover or we all get advertisements for collectors editions of classic books and what's advertised is not the content of the book, you see, but the beautiful bound leather cover because it looks so amazing on your bookshelf. Not that you would read it, it's just an artifact. Which begs the question of what will be the future of the printed Bible. Well, let me move from McLuhan to Neil Postman. So building upon McLuhan's more theoretical and abstract concepts was Neil Postman, 1931 to 2003. He was an author, educator, media theorist, and cultural critic in New York City. And he suggested that media technology, especially television, has turned important aspects of public life, primarily education and religion, into entertainment. His famous work, Amusing Ourselves to Death, published in 1985, was written while televangelism was in its heyday. And in this book, Postman argues that visual media like television is undermining other forms of communication, especially the written word. And now what I find interesting about Postman is how often he refers to the Bible and to preaching, though I don't see him as uh, a committed Christian, um, I really don't know his religious background, but he often uses preaching in the Bible in his discussions. For instance, Postman found the second commandment in the Decalogue to be significant. That the universal God of Israel chose 
not to be depicted by a picture of an icon, but demanded that he only be described with words. So Postman writes, the God of the Jews wanted to be understood and communicated by way of words, which allow the highest forms of abstract thinking. Now this is another argument that the medium of communication has always shaped the culture of the people who use it. So if for McLuhan, the medium is the message, for Postman, the medium is merely a metaphor, but a transformative metaphor. Technological media does not make concrete statements like speech does, but it classifies our worldview. Now, like McLuhan, he argues that new technology reorganizes our minds to the point where it can eventually control us. So our metaphors create the content of our culture. And I find it fascinating as a, as a, a, a homiletician that loves preaching history because what Postman does is he actually contrasts the older preaching of Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and John Wesley with the televangelists of his day, the Jerry Falwells and the Jimmy Swaggarts. And, um, and, and he really sets them against each other and says that, that the technological medium of television has really dumbed down the content of preaching to the point where it is merely entertainment. The character of the discourse between a Jonathan Edwards sermon and a Jimmy Swaggart sermon is radically different. So then television media points us towards entertainment, which changes the character of preaching. And Postman says new technology introduces new forms of conversations between God and man. But then he would also say, and God appears to be the loser in these new conversations. And then he gives the example of clocks, which he would see as a metaphor for the technology of timekeeping. So clocks have, have made us time sensitive and servants to technological timekeepers. Like I have my clock today to keep me on track. And I have this every Sunday when I preach, although I don't pay attention to it like I should because my media guys go crazy when I go over time. But so uh, here's what Postman would, would say to this. In describing the effects of the technology of the watch or the timekeeper, he says, perhaps Moses should have included another commandment. Thou shalt not make mechanical representations of time. The clock then is the metaphor or how the technology of timekeeping has transformed us from being timekeepers to time savers to time slaves. So if someone needs to go up for a class, this would be the perfect time to do that right now. Unlike McLuhan, Postman sees new forms of media not as extension of older forms that amplify them, but often as enemies that attack them. And in a later book called Technopoly, Postman is concerned that the advance of, the advance of technology may create a culture without a moral foundation and may reorder our fundamental assumptions about the world at large. I really appreciate when Postman contrasts the culture of typography communication in print with a culture formed by electric media, beginning with the telegraph. It's really fascinating as he talks about this. So he said, the invention of the telegraph so altered public discourse, 
so as to, as he says, dignify irrelevance and amplify impotence. It moved information, but it didn't collect information. It didn't explain it, nor did it analyze it. A telegraph message was not organized or analyzed like a personal letter or a book, and its contents were quickly gathered, consumed, and then thrown away. Postman said, the telegraph introduced a kind of public conversation whose form had startling characteristics. It was the language of headlines. It was sensational. It was fragmented, and it was impersonal. It sort of was the forerunner of Snapchat, or Twitter, if you would. And Postman said, thanks to electronic media, now we know lots of things, but we know very little about those things. And then Postman would say, now add the photograph. With the addition of, of the photographic image, which eventually led to the, the videoed image, a new way to communicate human experience was invented. Like the telegraph, the photograph recreates the world as a series of idiosyncratic events. Now the world is atomized. And combining these two, telegraph and photograph, we presently communicate news, our lives, and experiences via headlines and video uh, clips. So this would account for the current fascination with Facebook. And uh, thank you very much. And it would, no, don't apologize, that's perfect. This, this would account for the current fascination with Facebook, but it also accounts for the culture that Facebook has created. And I think that's important that these theorists are talking about technology creating culture. But what pressure does this have on the public discourse of preaching? Well, for Postman, and, and he focused more on television as a media, uh, it reshapes the sermon to be more theatrical, to be more emotional. The medium of television demands preaching to be entertaining, offering comfort or prosperity or, hey, get them both. But what Postman recognizes is that not all forms of preaching can be translated from just any church sanctuary or televised audience. You see... Video technology demands a certain personality type or style and a particular visual image. So it becomes personality driven because it must be visually pleasing. Now this is what I find fascinating because regardless of the content of the sermon, the most popular video or internet preachers even though their messages might be vastly different, if you'll notice, they create similar environments to record or to videotape their preaching. Now, if the message is different, but the atmosphere or the environment is the same, then again, it's the medium that becomes the socially transforming message, or at least the metaphor that depicts our current culture. Now let me move on to Arthur Hunt. So building on Postman, who built on McLuhan, is the writing of Arthur Hunt, who speaks about a conceptual transformation taking place as we move from an emphasis on the word to the predominance of the image. 
And now this has always been something that has been in dialogue, the contrast between word and image. And, and Hunt really takes this to task in his book called The Vanishing Word, published in 2003. He contrasts our biblical heritage, which he sees as being word-based. The children of God, the children of Israel, were to be a word-based culture as opposed to all of the pagan cultures surrounding them, which were a visually based culture. And, and they were image dependent. Now Hunt sees an uh, irreconcilable tension between word and image. Those who rely on visual representations to interpret their surroundings focus less on content and more on sensory appeal. So then uh, as time goes on, Hunt would say that there were periods within church history, such as the Protestant Reformation or Puritanism, that tried to reinstate a word-based culture, uh, transmitting ideas through words, whereas periods like the Dark Ages, Dark Ages devalued the written word and exalted the image or the icon. Hunt is concerned now, as we exist in post-modernity, that there has been a renewed veneration of visual imagery via media technology. And visual technology is sort of renewing a descent, if you would, into neo-paganism. He writes, although our communication technologies dazzle us, they also have the potential to unravel us and make us a bewitched people. Now, let me be now a little bit more practical and, and just address, for instance, how current media technology affects preaching in the way that it affects the audience. Now, it's important in all of this, I think, to remember that preaching is a two-way street. In essence, it is supposed to be a dialogue an interaction between a preacher and his audience. So Michael Cougar, who is the president of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, the Charlotte campus, in a recent article written for the Gospel Coalition on how has technolo the technology of social media changed the nature of the listening audience, he suggests uh, several things. First of all, social media continues to shorten the intention span and limit learning styles. Now there's some debate about this. But the debate usually rests in comparing current audiences with current audiences. And, and having a current audience listen to a sermon, having a current audience listen to a sermon and view a PowerPoint, and having an audience listen to a current sermon, view a PowerPoint, and you know eat a popsicle at the same time. It, there, there actually is an increased attention span when you compare current audience with current audience. But compare current audience with the audience 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and there's no question that technology has decreased our attention span dramatically. So he says, social media continues to shorten the attention span and limit learning styles. Uh, some are questioning if the contemporary congregation can listen attentively to a 40-minute sermon unless the sermon is somehow restructured to allow for shortened segments and tweetable moments. Second, social media minimizes a preacher's authority. This is a fascinating thought here. The internet, he says, leads to a sort of egalitarian view of authority. 
no one person's opinion should be valued or weighed more than another in the context or the environment of social media. Third, social media minimizes actual relationships because it, con it conveys a pseudo or fantasy image of the real person. Live relationships demand more reality and they demand more commitment. And, and, and uh, Cougar is, is now reflecting on another book um, written recently called Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other, uh, written by an MIT professor, Sherry Turkle. And, and then to add to that, uh, social media minimizes human contact. So many readily admit they would rather leave a voicemail or send an email than have a face-to-face -face conversation. Again, Turkle notes, the new technologies allow us to dial down human contact. Now listen to this. Modern technology then can create an almost non-physical or quasi-gnostic existence. And for Christians, that should alarm us. I mean, I find it ironic that Christianity's earliest enemy was Gnosticism, which espoused the belief that the physical world was inherently evil and that salvation was largely a release from the physical body. And now we adapt to social media, which allows us to escape physical interaction. And finally, he suggests that social media minimizes commitment and accountability. So the distance created by technology allows for communication to start and stop immediately. Therefore, there's no commitment. And in the, in the sense of, of a preacher in a congregation or maybe in the context of a local church, there's no covenant commitment required. All right, so then... I need to move on to what are the rules and honestly I don't know I do think there are a few principles I think there are even more observations that we can make and I think there's some questions that we should ask whenever we consider integrating technology into preaching let me begin with the questions so for several years I've been I've been considering uh, not only what technology does for preaching, but what does it do to preaching? I mean, both of those are vital. And in and, and having several conversations with, with uh, my colleague who's here and my hallmate, uh, Bruce Little, who really has thought a lot more in depth on this topic than I have. And I think mainly the reason for that is because he's so very much older than I am. But he's really helped me to think, I think, more deeply and broadly about the influence of technology in preaching. So um, Bruce would, he would get at the questions that need to be asked, at, literally as a, a set of three that I want to advocate. The first set is, what is the technology doing for me, but then what is the technology doing to me? The second, why this technology? as opposed to why not that medium or technology? And third, what is gained by the use of it and what is lost? Now, here, Neil Postman would agree with Dr. Little that every new technology involves a trade-off. Postman says, technology giveth and it taketh away. 
But Postman would also say, but never in equal measures. So for example, the printing press fostered individuality and self-autonomy self while it destroyed the medieval sense of community and integration. Learning was no longer learning in community. Learning became book learning. But Postman would say, what we've gained from print media has far outweighed what we lost. All right, so I, in just a few minutes that I have left, uh, I want us to analyze ourselves here at Southeastern. So I, I'm going to, this is no judgment on the media guys who are here, and absolutely no judgment on whoever made the decisions to put in all the television screens in Binkley Chapel. But I thought, why not poke fun at ourselves, or at least analyze ourselves in light of this discussion? So I'm sitting in chapel one day, and I'm on the far left side in the middle of the auditorium. And I'm contemplating all of this. And, and I'm bringing this up because I'm really hoping that maybe some of you have already commiserated with me when you sit in chapel. And if not, I really hope that I mess you up like I messed up every time I walk into chapel. And, uh, and want to focus on the preacher who we've brought in. All right, so uh, here's the image, if you would. <clears throat> All right, so now, if you look at the picture, here I am sitting down. And in close proximity to me is a flat screen TV. Now beyond that, in the distance, there's a small figure, a live human being, and he's preaching. And right behind him is this massive image magnification of the same guy. It's literally three feet away from him. And I'm totally confused. And I feel schizophrenic. And I feel like my brain is bifurcated because I'm asking myself, what image do I look at? So, let me just go through the questions and so you can get a feel for maybe how this interplay should work. Right? First set of questions. What is this doing for me? You've got all these flat screen TVs. Then you've got the large image magnification of the speaker. So what does it do for me? It provides a closer image and a larger image of the preacher. What is it doing to me? Well, it's attracting my eyes. The television screen is attracting my eyes. I want to look at what's closer but then at the same time, I want to look at what's bigger. But at the same time, I want to look at the real guy. It's doing a lot to me. And then I'm supposed to be focusing on what he's saying. Why? Why this? Why place flat screens in between the audience and the speaker? Why not just simply ask the audience to move up front? Which, hey, maybe that's the intent. But now if I'm in chapel, I'm on the front row. Because on the front row, I focus solely on the live preacher, the human being that's there. So why do that? Why not just maybe move on? Now, I've been told that the reason why we have all the screens is because it it's, makes it easier for people to see, especially when the auditorium is full. I would pray that every chapel service, the auditorium would be so jam-packed that we would need those screens. Although recently I haven't noticed that. So why not just move? Or, and I really don't mean to be facetious here, I'm just sort of allowing these questions to 
you know, to, to roll out, why not just show the video and remove the live preacher, which saves us time and money? If most of the audience is looking at the image magnified person, why not just use that rather than bring in the live person? All right, what is gained? Well, what's gained is the ability to see the speaker with greater clarity from all points of the, of the room, what is lost. Now, remember what I said before, preaching is a two-way street. It's a two-way street. It's not just someone preaching a monologue to some abstract, you know, a group. It's supposed to be a preacher in connection with real people. So one of the things that is lost is that the preacher has much greater difficulty in engaging the audience because the audience isn't looking at him. They're looking at the side of him or they're looking above him. And, and the sermon then is no longer what Harry Emerson Fosdick, my dog, it's no longer what Fosdick called an animated conversation because eye contact is lost and there has been a psychological shift from participation in the preaching event to watching the preaching event. And, and I want to be careful here, but I do want to make a couple more statements about image magnification, if you'll just bear with me. And, and even if this is just sort of bias, opinion, or venting, just, just give me a moment. What does image magnification do to the psyche of an audience? If, if, if I'm here live speaking to you, but behind me is a 30-foot image of me, what does the 30-foot image of me do to you? And, and how does that transform the cultural environment of our communication? You see, a larger-than-life image communicates the person whose image is being magnified to be greater. At least of greater importance than those in the audience. It's the large image that denotes power, prestige, and popularity. A magnified image creates celebrity, much like the way that we attribute celebrity status to those that we see on the cinema screen. But have you ever seen Tom Cruise in real life? He's a little tiny guy, but the only image that we give him is a larger-than-life celebrity. Or recall the giant 50-foot poster of LeBron, LeBron James that hangs in Cleveland, or the larger-than-life statue of Michael Jordan. You see, again, the focus is on the image rather than the word. And part of the reason why we have celebrity preachers is because of our tendency to celebrate images. And it is hard to be humble when your image is constantly being magnified. So now here's, here's a, a point where video technology is exalting the preacher possibly above God's word rather than keeping the preacher's persona as common as grass that withers and as common as flowers that fade. And maybe this in part is why Paul so stressed the foolishness of preaching and the preacher. 
so they would never nullify the word of God or the gospel. So let me conclude with a few principles to consider. And, and maybe these are just suggestions. One, technology can be a helpful servant, but it is a terrible master. Two, visual media decreases the attention span and capacity to read. Three, maybe we should consider magnifying words on screens rather than images or persons. Now I want you to consider this. And it's part of the reason why I'm using PowerPoint. Because if you'll notice, what I'm using in PowerPoint is ju are just words. Just words. Now what if on the screens, if we're going to magnify anything, that we magnify words rather than images? At that point in time, potentially, what we communicate is that the Word of God is what is larger than life, rather than the preacher becoming larger than life. Maybe if the Word of God becomes larger in life, then, then we develop a new sort of construct in our audience's psyche. Just something to consider. Next. Slick, slick technology cannot compensate for sloppy preaching. This comes from Michael Quick, who teaches preaching at Northern Seminary. And then finally, live preaching is to be preferred to other forms, whether that be video or radio or print. And, and then just again, in regard to this sort of quasi-gnostic existence that technology allows us to create, that excludes this non-physical, face-to-face interaction, I really think this is contrary to biblical Christianity. And, and I'm not going to go as far as saying that's the reason why Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, but there is something to the Son of God becoming incarnate that helps us to develop some theology of communication. The Word became flesh. And biblical Christianity has always advanced a robust and positive view of a physical, incarnational interaction between the preacher and his audience. So, no matter what you decide on the use of technology when preaching, remember, primarily, we are commanded to preach the word in every season and in every technological age. And to the extent that we can create an incarnational experience of a preacher with his listening audience in a manner that glorifies God and exalts his everlasting word, the better. Thank you.